Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Biopractica podcast. I am Claire Murray, and today my co-host Paul Kern and I, we're going to be taking a closer look at liposomal glutathione and NAC, why they're important, and also how they can be used to improve health outcomes for a whole range of our patients. So first, Paul, a hello to you. Uh, You were recently, at the time of recording this, in Melbourne for a seminar. How was it? How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm very well. Uh, it, it's interesting. The seminar, some, some of the topics were one of the chats we've had actually in the past on the podcast, looking at the microbiome, uh, looking at the metabolites of the microbiome and the health benefits that they actually confer. So, um, it, it, it's nice to get out there again and actually see people. I mean, I, yes. I love podcasts. I love chatting with you. Yes. I, I know we both don't mind a good webinar, but it's really yes. nice to actually be out there and uh, chatting with people again. So, um, yeah, it's fantastic. However, I am a little tired because I had to get up at 4 a.m. this morning to uh, fly back to Adelaide. So, uh, yes, perhaps I could do with uh, some glutathione and NAC (laughs) today. That's what I was just thinking. But I'll let you take that dad joke. Thank you very much. Absolutely. (laughs) So, I I was going to say, Claire, look, why don't you start while I'm starting my brain uh, yes. to just give people a, a quick sort of, uh, you know, a, a very short brief on, uh, you know, on, I guess, glutathione, because I, I guess that's what I'm keen to chat about first. Well, yes, if we do some 101s to for, just for some orientation, we know that glutathione is made up of those three key amino acids, cysteine, mm-hmm. glutamate and glycine. We have to keep in mind there, and I think we'll chat about it a bit later, that cysteine is that rate-limiting amino acid out of those three. But glutathione, you know, we all kind of know it from our uni days. It really is that master antioxidant of the body, isn't it? However, it's really key to keep in mind that it is our intracellular antioxidant. So it's the one that's working inside of our cells. And it really helps to maximize the activity or kind of even help recycle of some of our other antioxidants like vitamin C, E, CoQ10, alpha-lipoic acid. You know, we've got kind of an amazing chorus of antioxidants going on there. But uh, we know all of our antioxidants, their kind of real key job is to be scavenging, inactivating those free radical molecules that are directly responsible for that cell damage, DNA damage, and, you know, therefore kind of the speeding up or that increased kind of cellular aging and then even that kind of wider concept of aging of the human body as well. Mm. Um, so with that in mind, putting to you, why why is it important? Like I've touched on that probably already a little sure. bit, but kind of what is glutathione like really doing in the body? Like what's kind of What's happening and what is glutathione doing? Look, there's there's probably a number of things we can sort of generally break it 
down into. And, and you know, I, I think it's really easy for us to say sometimes, oh, it scavengers and neutralizes harmful re- free radicals and, oh, it's an antioxidant. And uh, I think sometimes we sort of gloss over that a little uh, – we just gloss over it rather than really thinking or really appreciating – what it means and and the impact that that has, you know, on on people's health. And what I really liked was, you know, you were talking about glutathione, um, you know, that these free radicals play a role in aging, DNA damage, oxidation of cells. um, And but glutathione being so powerful because it actually helps really, I guess, with, for want of a better term, um, you know, or or has such beneficial effect on the other antioxidants that we're going to get quite regularly in our our diet as such. Or you might Mm -hmm. be getting some of these regularly in our diet because glutathione is made by the body, which is both really cool, but also, you know, sometimes it'd be nice if we could just ingest it. But, you know, hopefully in our chat today, we'll actually get to ingesting glutathione because, of course, I'm, I know you've been asked this question a few times. Well, can you actually absorb glutathione if you uh, ingest it orally? So, mm. uh, ho- hopefully we'll mm. talk about that. But look, glutathione itself generally regarded as something to promote healthy aging and overall cellular function. And this is what I was saying about the antioxidant status before. I think we need to keep in mind that you know, antioxidants really play a huge role in, in cellular function and cellular health. And I will say earlier this year when, you know, I was sort of uh, looking at my birth certificate and I realized how many birthdays I'd had, I said to myself, <laughs> I, I, I need to make sure that I, I keep myself, you know, as, as fit as I possibly can. And, you know, there's so much data and the da- a lot of the data is that, you know, the more birthdays we have, the less our cellular function is and less things like glutathione we produce. And we'll talk about that. In, in a little while. But, you know, that means that these antioxidants support mitochondrial function and maintain mitochondrial DNA. And, and you know, as I said, the more birthdays I have, the more important it is I realize that, you know, maintaining mitochondrial health is so mm. important. And, you know, some of my experiences with patients and even my own personal health is the more you can maintain mitochondrial health, the more you actually maintain metabolic health. So I even now start to see mm. that these disorders of metabolism, and I'll call it blood sugar disorders, those sorts of things, I actually think there's a pathway. I don't know exactly what the pathway is. I haven't found it all. I can't map it out. That leads back, though, to mitochondrial health. And there's a lot of people out there who actually talk about that. But mm. look, you know, glutathione is associated with greater amounts of lean muscle mass, and we know that's healthy aging. Absolutely, there's a number of studies done which talk about supporting athletic uh, performance. Uh, of course, though, you know, it, so many people know it, though, because of its ability to help the body's detox processes, you know, move toxins and heavy metals out of cells and into the circulation where they can, in fact, be removed from the body. It's also been shown, though, to promote T-cell function and balance both immune and inflammatory responses. And as I said earlier, you know, it's interesting because we, you know, the concept of generally ingesting glutathione, we don't find foods high in glutathione. We can find foods high in vitamin C. We can ha- find who, yeah, excuse me, foods <laughs> high in vitamin E, tripping over my tongue. But we don't find foods high in glutathione. But uh, glutathione, which our body produces itself, actually helps us, I'll say, recharge the vitamin C, the vitamin E, and even other things like CoQ10 as well. Mm. So I think there's some of the really key reasons that, you know, glutathione is so important. Mm, It's a hardworking molecule or antioxidant, Mm. isn't it? And it makes sense. Mm. Like I really like the point that you said before about 
you know, we talk about, oh, it's antioxidants, the master antioxidants, scavengers, free radicals. And it's like, well, what does that actually mean? It means that the cell gets to stay healthy. The cellular mm. components like the mitochondria, which really dictate whether or not that cell functions well, get to stay healthy. The cell membrane gets to stay healthy, which we need to allow nutrients in, waste out for it to communicate to cells next door. Like, you know, it then starts to make sense why it would support athletic performance and it would support lean muscle because it's exactly like you said, you know, we keep the cell, the mitochondria healthy, we keep the metabolism healthy. If there's less oxidative stress, then of course it would promote healthy T cell, you know, and inflammatory responses because all of that's like, oh, we don't have all of these oxidative cells that we have to go out mm. and, you know, be triggering this inflammatory response to. So I, I kind of like your point of like, well, when you unpack it further, you know, it's working really, really hard to kind of keep us healthy, mm. isn't it? So mm. you touched on a bit before low glutathione, how it can get depleted. You know, we do make it, but there can be, you know, it can, there can be kind of rationale to ingest it at some point, which, you know, like you said, we'll get into in a little bit. But what are some of the reasons why, if our bodies are able to make it endogenously, why would it mm. become low? Like what, what's depleting it for us? Look, there, there can be a whole range of things. Now, unfortunately, it is associated with aging. They generally say the older you are, the less glutathione you produce. However, when you do dig a little bit deeper, it does seem like some of the reason that the body may produce uh, less glutathione is because generally as people age, they probably consume less protein. But the other thing, and I, I think we all know this, an aging digestive tract probably doesn't make things like hydrochloric acid quite as effectively mm. nor as efficiently. So your ability to really get those amino acids that you mentioned before out of your food becomes a little bit compromised and depends on who you are and your other health issues. But for some people, it might be a little bit compromised. For other people, it might be a lot compromised. It does turn out though that excessive amounts of linoleic acid, the body actually uses larger amounts of glutathione to protect the cells from the uh, damage of these excess linoleic acids. And I think that's important to realize that glutathione is there really to protect us. So, you know, alcohol consumption, that uses a lot more glutathione or the more alcohol people drink, of course, because the glutathione is used to metabolize the alcohol or as part of those processes. If people have excessive iron in their body, glutathione is there to actually save the cells from the damage of excessive iron. You know, if there's a toxic overload, it's absolutely known that the more toxic uh, or, or the greater exposure to toxins, the lower the levels of glutathione. And that's because the glutathione itself is fundamentally just being used up mm. by actually, uh, you know, its antioxidant effect on these toxins. So other things, though, that can affect it, of course, it has been associated with obesity. And there is good data now showing that basically, unfortunately, when people are obese, they're going to have more oxidative stress in their body. An interesting side note, though, is glutathione deficiency can also actually lead to vitamin D. Lower vitamin D levels in obese individuals was actually shown. So, you know, it, it's interesting that I don't think we always think that obesity necessarily leads to a decrease in things like glutathione, but there's absolutely data out there showing that. Interestingly, the body makes glutathione, as we've really clearly stated, and the lack of exercise is associated with lower levels of glutathione. And if you do want to naturally raise your glutathione, a certain amount of exercise, a healthy amount of exercise uh, does appear as quite important. But, you know, look at other things like stress, inflammation, 
you know, those things really can deplete glutathione. But one that I think is really interesting that I know some practitioners have seen a bit more of is the exposure to mycotoxins. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that the greater your exposure to mycotoxins, they can actually block a cell's ability to produce sufficient levels of glutathione. And, and of course, I'm pretty sure most people listening to this or watching this are aware that, you know, you know, that mycotoxins will block a lot of different cellular pathways, I guess I'll say. So, um, you know, th those are the things that, to look at. I, I just want to quickly add, though, for practitioners, though, because you can't really necessarily – you can get glutathione tests. I don't – I've never once in my clinic tested for glutathione levels. Mm. But there is sort of a bit of a correlation. Some individuals say high blood levels of homocysteine could be an indication of glutathione deficiency because homocysteine, remember, is meant to be uh, converted into glutathione and S-adensylmethionine or S-adensylhomocysteine. So just if you are wondering, there's a little clinical tip there, maybe keep an eye out and do have an eye on people who have high levels of homocysteine when you're trying to work out how much glutathione people do or don't have. I definitely agree. I used to work in a clinic that had a really big focus on methylation, MTHFR, those mm. kinds of things. Um, so we were looking at, you know, the, all of those methylation pathways in, in a lot of detail. And it mm. was very fascinating to see, you know, in inverted commas, inverted commas, an otherwise healthy person and to look at their homocysteine because mm. it really is kind of one of those end stages of that methylation process, the production mm. of semi, and then it's meant to go back yeah. around that cycle to produce more or go down that pathway to produce glutathione. Like it's, you know, gets broken down into that cysteine amino acid mm. again. And yeah, how it could be well above optimal range for people. And you think, yeah, there's, mm -hmm. there's some kind of breakdown in that pathway there. Mm. So I agree. Mm. That's a very good kind of clinical tidbit there to be looking out for. Mm. But for patients or for practitioners to be passing on to their patients, you know, beyond yep. supplementation, which we'll talk about next, what can they be mm -hmm. doing? You touched on this a little bit with the exercise. What can they be doing naturally themselves at home, diet and lifestyle-wise to be kind of boosting up their production of glutathione themselves? Well, well pro pro probably the first thing is to eat the right sorts of foods. I'm pretty sure every practitioner I know would be telling people to eat. And that is, you know, your broccoli, your Brussels sprouts, you know, your sulfur-rich diet, cauliflower, garlic, onions, you know. But you've got to remember because there are those three amino acids uh, that mm -hmm. are fundamental to glutathione that, you know, you people do need a really good spread of protein. So, you know, if, I'll say for the average person who is ha, isn't going to choose a, pl a whole uh, plant, a whole food plant based diet only, that you know <clears throat> there is at least sufficient protein there, and that might be fish, that might be poultry, that might be you know lean uh, beef, but of course, as as I've said, there's other you know vegetable sources of protein, but those are some of the better ones. Next one is, as I said before, though, exercise. So there's that sort of, I guess you want to stress the body enough so it produce, mm. starts to produce a bit more glutathione, but you don't want to stress it too much. So, you know, I'll say reasonable exercise. You know, get mm. you've heard me say this before and I often say it when we're chatting, Claire, you know, you want to try and get your heart rate up to about 110 or 120 for at least, you know, 20 minutes or thereabouts. And I say that because then I don't think, you know, you, you're kind of stressing the body a little bit but not excessively. But, you know, people can determine their own suitable levels of exercise. One thing I thought was interesting, though, is I did find um, some information that higher levels of melatonin 
seem to enhance glutathione production. So making sure people get good sleep is most likely going to actually enhance glutathione production. But, you know, I'm sure that really isn't anything where you go, wow, that's that's groundbreaking. I mean, what is good quality sleep not good for? Yeah. <laughs> whenever whenever yeah. we try to improve someone's health, it's like, you know, you need good sleep. Try and get, you know, seven, eight hours. Mm. Look, really quickly though, also alcohol's got to be a bit of a – you really mm. – people really need to pair it back and people really need to pay attention to the standard, I'll say, alcohol advice of no more than two drinks for women, four sta- – and these are standard drinks, four standard drinks for men. And, you know, really uh, in an ideal scenario, never day after day. Mm. at least a day between them, you know, and and those are some of the strategies people might need because we know it's going to deplete glutathione. Really interestingly, though, exposure to near-infrared light can also help with production of glutathione. So hopefully, depending on where you are, and I know where you are up in Queensland at the moment, sunshine probably still, you don't have a shortage, but down here in SA, you know, sunshine would be great, or you can use even things like near-infrared exposure on bare skin Mm. and then of course there's uh, just different supplements so of course nac is one of the big ones uh whey protein why because of the amino acid profile there Uh, it does turn out though that milk thistle is actually pretty good Mm -hmm. at helping uh, the body with production there so you know there's a whole range of other things but you know if if i'm talking about it from a nutrient perspective you know of course we got to go glycine glutamate cysteine selenium B2 or riboflavin, magnesium, vitamin E, lipoic acid, B12, all these things have been shown to either help the body produce or they help with that overall metabolism of glutathione. So so they're the things I tend to recommend. Is there anything extra that I've missed out on that you'd throw in there for your patients? Look, I think there's quite a few there to work with. No, I, I think that's mm. a com- you know pretty comprehensive list. I think it's mm. a nice balance between things, showing patients things that will increase their own production of glutathione Mm. and then also activities or habits that will deplete their glutathione Mm. so you know trying to Mm. moderate or avoid those as much as possible to kind of try and strike that balance if you will and then Mm. you know just how kind of antioxidant rich that list of supplements and kind of cofactors mm. you know that you talked about like selenium vitamin e lipoic acid magnesium mm. you know like how they're all a lot of the time working in concert to kind of really i suppose in essence kind of maintain that cellular health isn't it you know is kind mm. of i suppose the key thing that we're talking about at the end of the day there but one that you did mention was nac like i said before mm-hmm. we know it is cysteine is that rate limiting and amino acid for the production of glutathione. So there can Mm. be a bit of an argument that it can be really nice if we are going to be prescribing our glutathione to also co-prescribe it with some NAC. Mm. So I thought this Mm. could be a good chance just to have a bit of a chat about that aspect. What are your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, look, it's interesting because I think the debate goes a little bit like this. If you need glutathione, we'll supplement with glutathione. Okay, or if you want to increase people's endogenous production, give them NAC. But what's the point in giving them together? Because, you know, if you're giving glutathione and and people, you know, in in a readily absorbable form, why even give the NAC? There's what's the point? You're going to supplement with glutathione. But I think what people need to remember is that, you know, it can be quite, you know, it can be really important to supplement with a really good kind of glutathione. But at the same time, you really should be trying to upregulate the body's 
own production of glutathione. Mm. And as, as you've said a couple of times, and it's so true, the rate-limiting step generally of glutathione synthesis is cysteine and cysteine availability. So you give the two together because you you both want to supplement. So let's let's assume someone has signs of low glutathione, okay? You're giving the glutathione to deal with, I'll call it, that deficiency that's there at the time. But then you should also give the NAC because you want the body to start producing its own glutathione. We don't just want to supplement. And so that is why putting the two together, I think, is is really important. And I do think that when you are treating patients and when you're using glutathione, I'll say therapeutically, that using the two together is is really important. You know, and, and there, there's some other, you know, aspects that also talk about, you know, NAC actually, as I said, fundamentally regulating the glutathione production, but but more than that, regulating even how it's actually used as well. So that's why, you know, for me, you know, it's that synergistic effect. And, you know, when I see people with, you know, inflammation throughout the body, I'm going, okay, we know glutathione, great antioxidant, great for inflammation. But, you know, when it's that systemic inflammation, I'm thinking glutathione NAC. I don't just want to supplement it. I want to help the body produce its own. When I see Mm. people that have signs of that low mitochondrial function, sure, I can just supplement it. But what about getting the body to make its own, you know, and the same goes for, you know, energy levels, even things like mood regulation, which, um, you know, we, we should sort of look at with uh, things like NAC, I think is really important. So, so for me, I, I think, you know, you really should be using the two together. I think it's really important. Yeah, I love what you said there about synergy. I think it's a good way, such a good way to talk about this comment. If we are seeing someone show you know, kind of show up to our doorstep in clinic and they do have that systemic inflammation or you can tell that that mitochondrial health is really compromised, then, you know, let's get, let's not muck around. Like let's get that glutathione up, but let's also be providing the body with that NAC so it can be mm. starting to get that endogenous level back up itself. So mm. I very much agree. I think that makes a lot of sense, kind of that combination of the two. But I think this quickly then leads into my next question of, well, everything, you know, there's a lot of chat about how glutathione isn't very well absorbed. Should I, is mm. it even, you know, the best use of my time to be even be prescribing glutathione? And everyone's talking about liposomal these days and liposomal this and liposomal that. So mm-hmm. why, mm-hmm. why liposomal? Like why, why should I be interested in that? Well, well, you, you're right. There's certain data out there showing that just free form glutathione orally ingested has almost zero effect on glutathione levels within cells. It really has very, very poor effect. So, you know, I think if we're supplementing with just free-form glutathione, and, and you know, free-form glutathione isn't necessarily a cheap supplement anyway, I, I don't think there really is the value there and the data isn't showing that there's value there. The data does show, though, that in a liposomal form, and, and, you know, some of the data was showing that, you know, you, you can get a three times higher level of glutathione in the body by using a liposomal form than when you're using a non-liposomal or, or just free glutathione as such. So I think it is really important that, you know, 
if we are going to be talking about glutathione for people, if we are seeing people coming in with, the, I'll call it the signs of aging, with inflammation, and by the way, I actually even use glutathione supplementation very often in people that have dysregulated blood sugar. So those people mm-hmm. that almost seem like they're on the verge of insulin resistance, to me, mm-hmm. that tells me that cells are not working well. And, mm-hmm. and so I've started to use things like glutathione and NAC in, in combination there. So, um, and when I do that, of course, I absolutely use liposomal glutathione. The, the point, though, that I guess I think is important here is that, you know, I'm not just using glutathione to treat dysregulated blood sugar. I'm doing everything else. But the problem is I often found in the past I could use some herbs and some nutrition that was well indicated and I still wasn't quite getting the traction. And that it does seem now when using things like the, you know, liposomal glutathione and some NAC together that I, it seems to shift what's happening with their blood sugar a little more quickly. So, and, and as I said, you know, their energy improves and things like that. So, look, liposomal glutathione, why? Because in a nutshell, you know, there's great data showing that is in fact used by the body and taken into the cells. As for NAC, interestingly, there was a study done, I think, oh, about 10 years ago, and they're looking at paracetamol toxicity. And, and they used paracetamol toxicity in liver cells as, as basically a marker. This was a study done in um, in animals. And what they found, though, was that the liposomal, the animals that got the liposomal MA, NAC, sorry, and were given paracetamol to induce paracetamol toxicity, it was the liposomal form that was much better at reducing hepatic toxicity than when they supplemented the animals with just free NAC. So, you know, there's even data. in Before I'd sort of come across that, I would have said, look, I get glutathione, and mm-hmm. wanting liposomal, but why? Why an amino acid? But there is absolutely data out there showing that NAC in its liposomal form is in fact better absorbed. It has better, we'll say, health effects. Mm. And um, I think that's going to be also pretty important with our aging patients, who we've mentioned a couple of mm-hmm. times too, or anyone where we're identifying uh, this person has compromised digestion, <laughs> their protein digestion is not crash hot, but we've got mm-hmm. you know systemic or metabolic or you know inflammatory based things mm-hmm. that we really need to get on top of that, uh, and antioxidants like these two are really really indicated for. Then you're really just making sure with that liposomal, you know, more fat-soluble delivery that we're kind of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of really, it's like an insurance policy, isn't it? Like really mm. we can say to our mm. patient, like we are going to ensure way more than that free form, like you said, that this is going mm. to get absorbed and delivered into your cells. Mm. I was also going to add there, Claire, that over my years of practice, I, I, I now get to a point where I want to limit the variables. And what I mean by that is mm. I don't want to give someone – uh, you know, we'll, we'll just say NAC or, or glutathione and not necessarily see a change and then wonder, well, should I have used a more absorbable form? Would that have given a better result? So I, I as a practitioner, I kind of want to limit those variables now and I really do look for things that are going to be better absorbed. So I can use it in clinic. I can see what difference it makes to the individual's health and at least I'm not left wondering, oh, should I have used a slightly 
different form or something more bioavailable. So, you know, f- for me, I, I really see the value, I guess, in, in, in clinic of using liposomals. Yeah, well, I agree. Like as technology comes out and we have that data to support it, it's like, hey, let's not muck around. <laughs> like, mm, let's, mm. let's make sure we're using the thing that's going to get get the result that we want. So mm. thank you. That's been really insightful. Thank you for sharing this info about glutathione. I think that is all we have time for now for this podcast but i think that we are going to be doing one more podcast on nac coming up so make sure that you listen out for that but otherwise i think that's all from us for now so thank you so much paul for sharing your insight wisdom on glutathione its combination with nac and all of those kind of clinical tips and insights as well i'm sure that everyone will get a lot out of it listening i know that i did Perfect. And thank you uh, for the chat, Claire. Always a pleasure. It is. So we will sign off from here, I suppose. Enjoy, everyone, and we'll be uh, talking to you again soon. Bye for now. See you later. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.